On this week's episode of the Native Immigrants Podcast, we are back and we discuss BBC's Big British Asian season of programmes, as well as talking about Boris Johnson. What was he thinking with those remarks about the burqa? The Native Immigrants are in the building. Hit the music. Salutations and welcome to another edition of the Native Immigrants Podcast. I'm your host, Swami Barakas, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jojo underscore B. What's going on, Jojo B? Hi. How's it going, Jojo B? All good, thanks. How are you? Well, as you know, I've gone through a bit of a heartbreak this past week. What's that then? Deep, deep pain, trauma, and tragedy in what? my life. What tragedy? Yours truly is officially old. Oh, for God's sake. That's right, people. Swami Barakas, youthful, exuberant Swami Barakas, is 40 years old. It's not old. Bruv, it's I'm literally on the brink. No, because life begins at 50 now. It's not even life begins at 40 anymore. Life begins at 50. So shut up. Nah, because now, now I'm officially, you know, Asian Gujarati uncle age. So all I'm going to be talking about now is, well... You've been an Asian Gujarati uncle for ages. Yeah, no, but you know, now I'm like statistically on paper, age-wise. Your niece is 25. Uncle. Yeah. So I'm not talking about her. Why is that? You always have to change the subject when I'm trying to t- well, talk to saying, you like, about something really traumatic in my old. life. You are always older than her, so it's fine. Don't That's like saying it. I was always older than my than my younger brother. That's not the dumbest argument ever. No, it's not. I think old age is getting to you too now, bud. I don't care. I don't feel old, so it's all right. That's because you're still in your thirties. I'm forty. I don't want to be forty. I don't want to be in my forties. Well, I mean, it's I either be forty or be dead. So, which one would you rather be? Because uh... that's the only choice that you've got now. <laughs> what stay alive or die well yeah basically so either deal with it or you know like what? jeez what is up with jojo b today <laughs> fucking hell see i'm just like you know i'm just these feeling bad about choices. being 40 and she's just like well you can either stay alive or die well these are the choices you have in life <laughs> this is all that's left now so either be 40 feel, and enjoy 40 i'm allowed to feel bad about being in my 40s because you know like for me you know everyone knows i'm obviously you know a, a rapper and I'm involved in the music and I've always maintained. People were surprised when I put up that I was going to be, that I was 40 years old on my birthday. They were legitimately in shock that no way are you 40 years old. Um, so when people say that, it actually makes me feel worse because I'm like, shit, maybe I shouldn't be 40. You know, like sometimes when you go to school and then you, you get kept back for a year because you're not um, academically sufficient. It doesn't make you younger. It just means that you're the old one in that year. Yeah, but it still means I still get to retain that youth uh, during that year and I can still live my youthful exuberance. No, you should enjoy the fact that you've got the luxury of making it to 40. Well, everything has to be about death, isn't it? You could have died in your 30s, we but at least you made it to 40. Exactly. Fucking hell. Appreciate so, what you have. People, we need to find ways to 
perk up Jojo B because she's obviously I don't got need the wrong perking side up because I appreciate life. Everything is extremely negative in Jojo B's mind at the moment, including me. I'm the negative 40. one. You're the one who just said I'm 40 and I hate my life. It comes from being around you too much, isn't it? You know I, mean? I just said you got to enjoy life, embrace it, no matter what your age. Yeah, well, I've clearly got no choice because it's either this or death for me. Um, and in order for you to have a life, you don't like the truth, do you? That's all. You don't like hearing the truth. I'm faced with the fact that I'm 40 and it slapped me in the face this week. Um, yeah, and, and I tried to it. ease the blow as much as possible. You did ease the blow. I've got, I've got to give you that. It could have been a lot worse for yours truly. I could have, you know, wallowed away in self-pity in the confines of my small West London flat. But instead, Mrs. Barracuda, Jojo underscore B, treated me to an amazing holiday in Santorini for my birthday. Yes, I did. So a bit of gratitude would be nice. And you know what? I'm going to put all my usual grievances aside for this podcast and say thank you so much, my love, for treating me to an amazing, amazing holiday. Instead of people think that I'm a misogynistic get who shows no appreciation to my wife for all that she does for me in my life. But you know what? Uh, that's not who I am. I am the greatest husband ever. And Jojo B showed that by treating me to an amazing birthday, an amazing holiday in Greece, which was awesome. I'm now very, very poor. Uh, yes. But, very um, poor. But, you know, at least you're, you're poor with um, an amazing husband. And I think sometimes life balances itself out in a way <laughs> when you've got so much joy you know, with your other half. Finances don't mean anything. Don't be so materialistic, Jojo B. It was nice. I treated myself to a lovely holiday as well. I finally was yeah. in complete control so he couldn't veto my choice of hotel. And I spent a lot of money. Yeah, because I kind of think if it had been me organising this trip, um, we'd have probably stayed in like some hostel. We have a shared bathroom. Shared bathroom. And we've been living on uh, tins of beans. Uh, but that's the Gujarati in me, obviously. Uh, Jojo B, uh, obviously with her Punjabi ways, decided to go all out. And uh, we stayed at an amazing uh, hotel. With a very, very private balcony and room and loveliness. Yeah. Um, it was It was actually the uh, honeymoon suite. Uh, of, yeah, it was. You know, so uh, we got all the perks of a honeymoon couple four years after we got married. You know, so they got us... Uh, it the same as a bloody honeymoon as well. Actually, uh, yeah. Well, I, obviously, I don't know anything at all about how much this holiday actually cost. Every time I try to ask her, Jojo B stops me on my tracks uh, from finding out. And because, because I know I'll get told off. Probably, yeah. I don't, you spent what on what, you know? Um, but you know what? Like, sometimes you need to treat yourself every now and then. Treat and yourself. Treat yourself. Uh, so people who watch Parks and Recreation will know exactly what that's all about. <laughs> um, but it was as much of a holiday for Jojo B as it was for me as well, to be fair. Because uh, she got a chance to relax, take it easy, eat loads of amazing food, take in some sights and sounds, sunbathe all day, jacuzzi up most of the day, work up a tan. Um, so, yeah. It was one of those rare holidays where we don't run around trying to see everything that's happening. We actually just relaxed and just chilled out. And we had this balcony with some private sun lounges. We could just, I didn't have to go and sit by a pool. They have to deal with other people. I didn't have to go and sit on a beach and deal with other people. We could just be in our own space and just chill out. And then if I fancied it, I could jump into the hot tub that was in the... In the hot um, tub. Yeah, hot tub on the balcony or hot tub 
in our room because yeah. we had two. Yeah, we had a we had an indoor outdoor hot tub, um, as well as a, an amazing balcony which oversaw, which looked out on, looked out on, <laughs> uh, the greatest sunset I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, um, every day. Yeah, everything about it just encapsulated the beauty of nature. We'll be going back to Greece. Uh, well, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will one day. That was my first time in Greece. And if it's anything like Santorini, then I'll be more than happy to go back. People he has still- this rule usually that if we've been to a country, we're not allowed to go back. But because there's so many different Greek islands and they're all very different. And then there's also mainland Greece, which I've been to. He hasn't been to yet. Um, I think, you know, it deserves repeated visits. Yeah, I've heard, cause that's the thing. I've heard a lot of different things about mainland Greece and then the islands, and they're so vastly different in people's experiences. Um, you know, some people said, oh, mainland Greece is just rubbish and the people aren't I didn't great. Like and it. Uh, yeah, well, you yourself, Jojo B, you had the same uh, experience. I had, a bit, I had a bit of a racist experience there. Oh, so I wasn't, I wasn't that keen. Yeah. If but, want... you know, I can't rule out the whole of Greece because of that one town that I went to. Yeah. We, exactly. We weren't racist experiences. We just walk out of our door right now. Uh, but, you know, to travel all that way and encounter them, not so much. Like I said, I, you know, there's only so many years to live. I'm 40 years old now, so I've got like maximum of like 10 to 15 years left in my life. So I want to spend that time to see as much of the world as I possibly can. Um, and so if we do get a chance to go back to Greece, great. Um, but don't feel too bad, Jojabi. Just do like a Shirley Valentine thing for yourself later on, innit? I blatantly am going to do this at some point in my life because I love that film so much. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it, watch it. Yeah, because then she like run off with like a, a Greek waiter or something. Well, what happens is she lives a life where her, her children ignore her, her husband ignores her and takes her for granted. <laughs> and oh, she gets to, she gets to about, I think she's like, she's 50, I think. Maybe a bit, maybe a bit earlier than that. But she just says, sod this, I'm going on holiday. Mm. And she goes by herself to a Greek island, I can't remember which one. And she has a lovely time just rediscovering the joy of life. Mm. And she gets a little bit of, you know, a, a bit of attention. Yeah. And uh, she kind of remembers the woman that she is. So she's a cheat is who no. she is. She cheats on her husband. No. And all you women all look, sit back and like condone this. Or, oh, that's great. You go, girl. You go get that Greek pee-pee and uh, have a good time. You know, but, you know, the poor husband at home. No, because he's the been... bastard who pays her no attention. And so she, I, I can't remember if she sleeps with him or not. I think she might do, actually. Exactly. So but like, it's just, it's a great film. You should go, you should watch it. It's very... Um, it don't go watch it, people. If you're easily influenced and you're in a mediocre marriage and sometimes things aren't going so well, it will make you cheat on your other half. So maybe don't go watch it. No, it won't. And just work on your marriage. Work on your marriage. marriage sometimes you just one. need to be... On your own. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, at an amazing time, another thing that Jojo B does, which actually uh, just pisses me off, every single holiday she does this. What? You know, but it's, it, it's it's one of my, it's one of your character traits I've just grown to love over the course of time. What is that? It's the fact that you go into jewellery shops and different shops and go in there and basically try on <laughs> every piece of jewellery in these shops and at the end of it, be like, okay, thank you. And put it down and then walk out of the shop. And I'm just like, if I was a shop owner and this chick came in there and just showed the most amount of interest in so much of my merchandise. And at the end of it, just went, yeah, no, thanks. 
I'd be like, you effing get. You know what? All the women out there are going to be like, why is that a problem? We all do that. People, no, it's that's fun. wrong. I like trying on jewellery. And if people are going to let me try it on, then I will try it on. They they try they let you try it on because they think we're going to finally make a sale today. Well, they didn't try hard enough to make the sale. But I'm you, really easy to sell to. You really are not. You go in there with the intention. Every time you're just like, oh, let's walk in here. I'm just like, no, because you're going to do that thing again. Where you, where you walk in there, stroll around, try on all these different jewels and then just put them all down and be like, okay, thank you. I didn't you. do that on this trip. I just looked at the window and the guy came outside and started trying to sell me the stuff from outside. So I couldn't help that. Yeah. I was just looking in the window. I was just like, dude, do not open this can of worms. And I'm like a magpie. I like anything that sparkles. You're like a grow. Oh, a magpie. And uh, yeah, I love gemstones and Greece is full of gemstones. Not just Greece, every holiday we've been on, all the places around the world, Jojobi's done exactly the same thing. And every time I cringe internally because I know there's going to be deep lying heartbreak for the shopkeepers at the end of it. I live in secret hope that one day you'll actually buy me something. Well, this was my birthday. So like if I had the guy actually said, why don't you go, why don't you buy her something? I was like, it's my birthday. Was that so? Exactly. I was like, dude, like if, so she'll expect something on her birthday, which is only like a month before mine. And then she'll want something else for my birthday. When, when, when do I get any gifts? You know, that whole trip was a gift. And I very, very much appreciated Milo. Uh huh. <laughs> Whatever. But I do very much appreciate it. And it was. But also, life. your birthday didn't just end there, did it? It did not, Judge B. Because you know what? Like you, you know, because you say my birthday has to last the whole month. So the month of June is my birthday. No, so, no, actually, because my birthday is at the end of June. So it's kind of half so, of June and half of July. In mid June and then to mid July. And so then my birthday really should start at the mid-July to mid-August. So technically, it's kind of still my birthday right now. Happy birthday to me! Yeah, and I've been making your birthday amazing all the time. Yeah, uh, I appreciate it. I can keep saying. Yeah. But tell them what you did, Jojo V, when we got back to the UK for my birthday. So when we got back, actually, this, the planning for this had already started before we went. Um, me and my lovely brother-in-law, uh, Ashish Big up, uh, decided to you know do a little uh, family get together because my darling husband has the, has his birthday in the same week as his mum look how that worked out yep they're only four days apart so we thought when we got back not in years from holiday that we'd have like a little family get together and so I had to engineer this whole thing because your mum is like the hardest person to get anything past yeah she's she like... asks a million questions and just you know, she just won't let go. She won't stop asking questions. It's like living with the Riddler. <laughs> so we had to get her out of the house. So I volunteered to go to the mandir. <laughs> and I volunteered. If you, if you know Jojo B, you know how much of an arduous task that is for her to go to any kind of religious establishment. And he didn't He didn't even clock that I, this is an unusual behaviour for me. I was like, yeah, let's go to the mandir. Like, come on, we'll go with mum and dad and we'll have a lovely like trip. This was me thinking, do you know what? I think we're finally made. A bugat out of Jojo B. No, no, he hasn't. Yeah. And so we went and we had a little wander around and we came back. And then there was two cakes waiting there. One for mummy. Woo. And one for hubby. Woo. And what does yours look like? Oh my god. <laughs> it was the it was a chocolate sponge cake. Yes, it was. That was made to resemble a bowl of chili paneer. <laughs> And anyone that knows me knows that chili paneer 
or paneer of any kind is my favorite food in the world. So as soon as I opened it up, it was literally a jaw drop of amazement because this cake was so unbelievably realistic. <laughs> uh, from the little soft little nuances and the subtlety in it, from the glaze over the little pieces of paneer, the shininess of the peppers, there was a, like a spoon that was made to look metallic basically in there. Um, it was on uh, like a cutting board, which was made to look very wooden. And they even had a little handkerchief that was made out of icing on the side that said, happy 40th birthday, Himesh, which is my name. It was absolutely awesome. It, one of the greatest cakes I've ever seen. And it was so amazingly apt because I love paneer and I love cake. And we've got to thank who, Jojo B, for that, apart from you. Uh, a lovely lady called Gavul Thakur, who uh, has a company called Cav's Cupcake Stall. Yep. And she makes amazing cakes. And this one, I think she surpassed herself, to be honest. I think she smashed it with this one. Yeah, this is definitely, from the cakes that I've seen, she's, I've seen some amazing cakes on her um, Facebook page. But this is like the showpiece uh, cake, you know. This is the flagship cake. I was like, what What kind of cake? What theme? Mm. You know, it's a 40th birthday. He loves wrestling. We could do a wrestling cake. He loves Liverpool. We could do a Liverpool cake. Or we could do like a really, you know, it could go obvious and do the music thing. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you love all of those things. And I was like, no. What does he really love? Paneer. That's <laughs> what he loves. I do love my paneer. And so, you know, for me, it was a, a, an amazing gesture from the family. Um, and obviously my wife who organized it. I am your family. Um, well, yeah, you know, but okay. So I want I want to thank my whole family for it. No, no one specific and you know individualistic from there. My whole family because they were all contributed to it. How about that, Jojo? Well, exactly. Me shut and up. your brother mainly. Well, but. yeah, because mum didn't really know about it. She got a cake of her own as well, so she was just she a, had a lovely surprise. pink cake. Yes, with some Ferrero Rocher's basically on there. Um, but yeah, I, I put it up. I put the pictures up on social media like straight away, and then everyone's like, "That's not a real cake." We want to see the inside of it. That doesn't look like a real cake. That's not how most of my followers sound, by the way. Um, and then it, I took for ages for me to cut the cake because I just felt so bad ruining it. And then eventually later on in the evening, I was like, right, I need to just bite the bullet and do this. Cut the cake and you just see these three layers of chocolate cake with like, you know, the the, the buttercream in between. And it would just look, mm, and it tasted as good as it looked. Um, so big up all the people that are commenting and are wanting to get information about who made the cake. Cavs Cupcake Stall. Find her before she becomes really famous and then, you know, we just can't afford her. You can find her on Facebook. Yes, yes. Find her on Facebook and get your cakes from there. Right, Jojo B. So while we were gone, mm -hmm. uh, there was a special other birthday happened during that time. Was there? Yes, there was. Something that's very close to your heart. Oh, yeah. Yes, Spice FM, your old hunting ground. Yes, celebrated their ten-year anniversary. Ten glorious years broadcasting ten. across Tyneside, broadcasting across the northeastern waves, those most northern of northern waves. Uh, Spice FM, yeah. Jojo B, remind us a little bit about what you used to do at Spice FM. People who have listened to our previous shows will know, but if you're a new listener. What were you all about, Georgia B? Spice FM is a community radio station in Newcastle. Um, it's 
it used it started off just for the Asian community. But what it's done is it's taken in all of the communities. So there's various people from various different backgrounds that live around, in and around the area where the station is based, which is the West End of Newcastle. Um, and so they have shows in all different languages and they cover all the communities and faiths in the city. And they do loads of really, really good community work. And um, I used to be their breakfast show presenter, co-presenter with Sandeep. Which I find amazing because Jojo B for the love of God, can't get up in the morning. Yeah, so. but I was, you know, I would get up to get across Newcastle because I didn't drive, I still don't. And, you know, it was, one day, I'm not joking, it was minus 12. And I got up and I went to Spice. And that was the morning that Sandeep said, oh, we're not doing a show today. <laughs> in your face, Jojo <laughs> I was standing outside freezing my ass off. But um, I was dedicated. I would get up and I would be there for, we used to do eight till nine. It's a short breakfast show. An shows. hour. So you travelled all that way for an hour on radio. Yeah, because it's a community radio station. So you've got to do what you've got to do and when you can do it. And so, mm. you know, Sandeep has a kid. He had, to, he had commitments of his own. I was unemployed at the time. It just gave me a reason to get up in the morning, to be honest. Yeah. And uh, we had a we had a good time presenting. It was a very good time for you there on Jojo B uh, yeah. on Spice FM, Jojo B. Um, and and off, we've also been commissioned a one-off show on there almost four months ago. We still haven't done it, and we still have not done it. Apologies. Sorry, Sandy. Apologies to Spice FM. We've been incredibly busy um, with our own podcast. Uh, lo and behold. And uh, numerous things happening in our life, like having a life. Um, but we will as uh, soon as we possibly can, because now it's 10 years of Spice FM, whole anniversary, birthday celebration. I think we have to do something soon, Jojo B, to coincide not only our show, a one-off show on there, but also to commemorate this uh, landmark anniversary. Absolutely. Yeah. It's such a good such a good station. We used to do have so much fun. We do random shows about Asian underground music and stuff and all about, you know, this Asian urban scene that was going on at the time. Yep. I played you a lot. Standard. I played a lot of the other guys a lot, like Rackstar and Shizio and all everybody. I used to play everyone. Mm. Um, and it was it was really fun. Yeah. It was a really fun time. I think it just was a good little period for community radio stations in general during that era. Um, because obviously, like I've talked already about how the scene for me is kind of you know, regressed a little bit, especially the urban side of things. There were so many of us rappers and singers and we were going from different community stations all up and down the UK. Um, and a lot of them, uh, unfortunately, aren't around anymore. Spice FM is one of the few stations that I still know of that are still around today. And that's through the hard work of the team that were, that are working there. So Sandeep and Amit and Gaurav and Iram, all of those people that are involved who constantly, you know, working really hard for um, funding and to keep the license and doing all that groundwork within the community as well and being really involved in all of that. Um, and that's why that's still going because they really do work hard um, it needs not only the people behind the scenes, you know, keeping it going, but it also needs a local community to support, listen in, interact with the shows, you know, and when there's little millers happening all up, up and down the UK, um, sponsored by some of these stations and stuff, go down and there's support. The Newcastle Miller happens because of the hard work of the people from Spice FM. There is a council committee that works on it, but Newcastle, Newcastle Miller wouldn't be half the success that it is if it wasn't for the people who work at Spice FM. Newcastle Miller, by the way, is on Bank Holiday Weekend on Big this up. Sunday and Monday. If you're interested in going, if you're in the area, yes. go and check it out. It's a really fun day out. There'll be loads of good 
singers and stuff. They've got quite a good di- lineup this time. Mm-hmm. So um, get involved and get get down there. Yes, and also the London Miller is happening this weekend. By the time the show goes out, the 18th and 19th of August, it's going to be in Southall, of all places. Um, oh, so it's moved. It has moved from Gunnersbury to Southall now. Uh, the hub of Asian culture, I guess. It's, I think there's like an old school kind of vibe there. So people like Apache Indian and Jay Sean are going to be performing. Oh, wow. So, yeah, they've really gone back and brought back some of the old legends. That sounds um, cool. You know, so definitely pop down there. Again, it's going to be one for the whole family. Uh, lots of festivities, lots of food, uh, lots of music and just a good vibe, you know. And also Newham Under the Stars is happening as well. On the 17th of August. So this Friday, basically in Newham. And again, the same, uh, lots of acts performing that day. I think Dr. Zeus is performing there, um, along with a few other acts. So yeah, it's just that time of the year. Loads of festivals, loads of millas. Uh, the only time you get a chance to see any Asian people live on these festival circuit is during the millas, unfortunately. It's always a good time to catch up with people. Because at Newcastle Miller, I always used to bump into people that I would only ever see the previous year at the Miller as well. Yeah. Old school friends, that kind of thing. So it's always a good place to just kind of go and vibe. Exactly. You know, go down there, support your local millas, support your local community stations and just support other Asians. Full stop. Right. That's the end of the first half of the Native Immigrants podcast. When we're back on the other side, we're going to be discussing some of the shows from the BBC's Big British Asian Summer Season and also Boris Johnson. What was he thinking? What was he playing at? Talking about the Burka that way. See you on the other side, people. Welcome back to the second half of the Native Immigrants Podcast. I'm Swami Barakas. And I'm Jojo B. And this, Jojo B, is a take two for us. Yes, it is. Yes, unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, we uh, recorded this second half of the show uh, already. The whole second half. The whole second half of the show. So all the things that we're going to cover... And we got it all absolutely perfect spot on. And it was actually one of our best shows, (laughs) I've got to say. And all off the top of our heads as well. We didn't make any notes for this. I was formulating all these like crazy opinions in my head. That of like a, you know, a professor and a scholar. Um, And then all of a sudden, there was an error on the screen. (laughs) And we lost the whole show. Uh, so, unfortunately, we're going to have to re-record the whole show again, Jojo V. Yes, we are. Um, but I think we can do a better job. Right, here's hoping. Yeah. Because no one will ever know any better anyway. Absolutely. So, so we can tell you it's much better than the first time around and you'll never know. No, exactly. Um, they'll just assume that uh, this is the best that we can do. Right, so, cast your ears and your minds back all the way to episode 7 of the Native Immigrants podcast. On that show, I spoke about a forthcoming season of British Asian programmes on BBC, imaginatively titled BBC's Big British Asian Summer. This is now summer, and those shows have been on this week. So we spoke about each of these shows during the time and kind of did like a little preview for each of them. Uh, Jojo B cast her normal opinionated mind on most of them by 
you know, nixing <laughs> literally everything that was going to be coming on. I was a little bit more optimistic because obviously the way we're portrayed in today's pop culture on TV is we're all terrorists and people with forced marriages. Um, and all we want is to see Asian people on TV being normal. So our hope and desire was this series of programs was going to showcase that. And the first show that we actually watched, <laughs> amazingly, was Devdas. That was on uh, TV over the weekend. It was only like the middle of the night as well. It was like two o'clock in the morning or something it finished. Uh, yeah, it started at about 10.45 and it finished at about two o'clock, quarter to two. Uh, but this is the first time I actually saw a Bollywood film on TV in HD. Because if you're old enough like me to remember the old days when Bollywood films used to be on at like four o'clock in the morning on Channel 4, they literally were shown off a VHS tape from like Apollo Video or like Eros International. Because <laughs> uh, the print was that crazy shitty, you know, that fuzzy, like, uh, you know, the kind of old school, like 90s hip hop videos in the States, kind of fuzzy. It's kind of like fuzzy and warm and soft focus. There's something lovely about it as well. There's, there's something very shoddy about it. I miss the 90s fuzz. 90s fuzz is something we need to probably reintroduce now. Although you see, I've seen music videos now where people are like making like VHS style videos and stuff of music videos and they look like they need tracking yeah they're, they're tracking yeah <laughs> if you didn't need tracking for your tapes back in the day then i don't know what you were watching um but yeah devdas was on um which i haven't actually seen for ages but it was actually amazing to see and because it was in hd this awesome cinematography amazing landscapes uh the dance sequences the songs the soundtrack is absolutely awesome in that film it's just one thing for me that pulls that film back. What's that? And that's Devdas himself. I'm not a massive fan of Shah Rukh Khan. I never have been. I, I like him when he does the kind of like the the you know the angry villain roles when you know, he first came into cinema. Bazigard, yeah, or Anjam, <laughs> these kind of films. But this, I just couldn't feel emotionally connected to that character, and it needed to be someone so like emotionally driven. You know, it's a tragic character and you really want to feel for the guy. But I just, you know, he was just a, a a rich kid that, you know, couldn't get what he wanted and just poured himself into some liquor to make himself feel better. See, that's the thing, you see. This story is by Tagore and it, so it's very kind of Shakespearean, I guess, in that in the sense that it's like a big epic story and you need someone who can, who's an actor. You need an, an actor. Act yeah, an actor. You need, in the past, Dilip Kumar has played the role. Absolutely. And I think and that, was the, that, was the, that was this landmark role. Uh, because that was back in the day when a lot of the actors would be playing these real tragic roles. You know, Guru Dutt was playing these suicidal, you know, melancholic, uh, heartbroken characters. And, and Raj Kapoor the same and Dilip Kumar the same. So those roles and those kind of acting um, parts were very, you know common for that time or they were very prevalent during that time but there was also a bunch of actors like that you just mentioned that could actually act they weren't there to do action sequences they weren't there to do masala it wasn't about the pretty boys basically which is what yeah. it is now they did they did hindi cinema they didn't yeah. do bollywood yeah bollywood a, wasn't a thing I, i'm still not a big fan of the term bollywood which we'll come on to and to another program that also came on this in a little while um but yeah devdas um was a you know Odd way to start off a British-Asian <laughs> uh, summer of programs because it's a film is very much set in India with Indians. Um, but one of the shows that came on after that 
um, which was actually something that we, I know you were particularly interested in, Jojo B, mm-hmm. was that story of Dalip Singh, um, you know, the stolen Maharaja. Yeah. Uh, the story of uh, the last Maharaja of Lahore, who as a young child was pretty much transported from his homeland to here and basically worked his way up the uh, royal aristocracy. Yeah, his throne was stolen. The Kohinoor was stolen from him. Yeah. His birthright. Yeah. There um, was this, uh... his, his land was stolen. And he was a 10-year-old when it all happened. Mm. And it's it's what happened subsequently to his life that's really interesting. Um, and how it affected him and his character and his personality. Mm. Um, and what a flawed character he ended up being. Yeah, absolutely. I think Complicated. I'm... Complicated is probably the word um, because, you know, I think, you know, for a lot of people, he's a hugely respected figure. Um, you know, he the way he worked his way up the ranks, you know, because he was pretty much buddy buddies with the queen during that time. Uh, most she, of, he was the um, exotic plaything. The exotic plaything, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And she liked a bit of exotic to Queen Victoria. Well, yeah, absolutely. We saw Victoria and Abdul obviously recently talking about her, you know, her time with her manservant. Um, and I guess Dalip Singh didn't really play that role, but he did play the kind of, I, I guess you can say, token uh, Indian or Asian uh, among amongst her circles during that period. Exactly. Um, but, you know, obviously like, you've heard about a lot of his um, issues and the problems that he faced when he was over here as well. Um, and so, you know, he, a lot of his stuff was funded by the Indian Home Office. And when he couldn't get his way with them, he would speak to the Queen to, you know, to, to get more funds for his extremely lavish lifestyle. I think it was a, an interesting story, um, and this is one of the things that they showed on this program. Whether it was done from one perspective of his life, and obviously, when there's complexities of a character such as this, you don't necessarily hear the full story sometimes, and it's, it's been told from you know one you know you know one kind of perspective as such. Um, yeah, we'd have to do a bit more research into it ourselves because I'm not really kind of that au fait with his story and stuff until this until I saw this documentary I'd heard of him and I knew bits and bobs but I didn't really know as much as the show actually kind of let us know about his character and and what had happened to him and his um his rivalry with uh Dalhousie Dalhousie Mm -hmm. I don't know how you say his surname yeah um who was uh the governor of India is that the right term um possibly I don't know. He was like in charge, basically. So, um, yeah. And how he really didn't want uh, the leap to kind of get anywhere. Can I just say on this point as well that they kept saying Doolip? Yeah, exactly. Through the whole show. And not even from uh, the, you know, the the English people, the white people. But some of the Asians of the show were calling him Doolip as well. Doolip. Doolip. No, it's the leap. Come on, bruv. Come on. But anyway, watch that show back. It's on iPlayer on the catch-up. The Stolen Maharaja, the story of Dalip Singh. Very interesting story. Um, but another interesting show that came straight after that uh, was uh, The Lost Boys, uh, which was basically a story of young Asian men and yes. how they're potentially held back in society and what's holding them back and, and where they can progress. It was a really interesting show. I thought... For the first time, actually, it's the chat. It's been the the first kind of insight into young Asian men and the the issues they face beyond them being terrorists and beyond them, you know, being pedophiles and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. This is actually looking at real guys and their real issues. She looks at two ends of the spectrum, 
So she looks at the um, the Mirpur community in in Bradford who are very segregated yeah. and tend to, you know, um, live in slightly poorer conditions, mm-hmm. shall we say. Um, and then she goes to Leicester and she talks to the Gujarati community, yes, indeed. the um, East African immigrants or refugees, um, and how they started from nothing and have actually, you know, gone above and beyond in terms of uh, monetary success and wealth. Yeah. If you focus on the the Mirburi community, first of all, the insight there was that they're very segregated. They tend to live within areas that are almost completely Mirburi. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't even have to speak English in those areas. The kids go to schools and all the other kids are Mirburi. There'll be one or two token white people or from other communities, but generally they will be from the Mirburi community. They've got no incentive and they've also got no um, desire to go beyond that. Yeah, because it's easier to stick to what you know, and that's what they've been taught by their parents who are sticking to what they know and not integrating. And so the the kids then later on don't want to go to university, and they don't want to mix, and they don't. And you know, there's a couple of people in the documentary who do go away, but they come back really quickly. Yeah, because they find it really hard to mix with white people. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, um, but it's very similar to. I've got to say, it's very actually similar to to my story. It's one of the things I first. Um, you know, when watching that program that I could immediately relate to was actually my own story, you know, coming from a very much a, an Asian area, very much a Punjabi area in Southall. Um, and then going to university was the first time I really interacted with with uh, English people, white people en masse. You know, in our school, we had like one or two maybe in our year. Um, but, you know, to to come across that many people, which is kind of ridiculous to say now because we've got so many friends across all different races. Um, but at the time, that narrow-minded, real ignorant youth me uh, would find it very difficult to interact with someone that was white or have anything in common uh, communication-wise with someone that was white. And I was just lucky that, um, you know, I, I was walking across some halls and stuff in where I was staying and, and uh, the guys were playing like championship manager and that's what actually got me to walk in and actually spark up a conversation about football. And that's something that we could immediately relate to with each other. And that's how I started communicating. And then that's how I got to know people. And now I'm like, you know, what the hell was I thinking back then in terms of how ignorant I could have been? But these people, the same in in Bradford, have exactly the same issues. It's just that, you know, when you're away from those communities, when you're away from people outside of your own community, you do find it very, very difficult to to interact and to to integrate yourself basically in that society. I don't think it's the fault of those guys either. I don't think it's the fault, like it wouldn't have been your fault. It's the area that you grow up in and it's also the encouragement that your family give you yeah. to to mix and to have mixed group of friends. Also, the families are to blame in one another way as well in that they treat their sons like little princes. Yeah. You know, their sons have gone off to university, a few of them within this Mirpur community where actually the levels of education are lower than the average in this country. So the few that do go off to university and they do go off and kind of experience the real world, they come home. There's the, the guy, I think all of the guys that were on, on the show had come home. They hadn't finished yeah. because it was, it was just too daunting for them to like look after themselves. So they had to, you know, wash their own clothes or make their own food yeah exactly make their own food and i think they found it really really difficult and then there's this there's no kind of um, if i take the the example of my parents my parents would have been like well shut up and deal with it you know you have Mm. to learn grow up whereas their their parents go no come on like come back home don't worry about it we'll look after you forget university come and stay with us come 
don't ever leave us, don't grow. But it's also a, like the whole thing about controlling, which is what we spoke about a few shows ago, about, you know, the the ability to control your kids and still have a control over your children so that they're still always retained within your four walls and you know what's, you know, what they're doing, where they're going, because, you know, God forbid they go out to university and start mingling with bad influences and go out drinking and go out like smoking and clubbing and, you know, all kinds of extracurricular activities. So, you know, it's that also that that fear that Asian parents sometimes have, that kind of overt fear that their kids are going to go off and be, you know, you know, influenced. On the flip side, within the uh, Mirbury community, the girls are performing better educationally. Yeah. So they are finishing university. They are getting their degrees. And I, you can't tell me that the parents aren't stricter on the girls than they are on the guys. Not true. But the girls fight for what they want. They know that they have to fight really hard to get and really seize the opportunities that they get to be able to flourish and get a job and get a career out of out of all of this so that they can go out and look after themselves and they can do more with their lives because they don't want to be stuck. Whereas yeah. I think the boys do quite enjoy being stuck. They don't yeah. feel stuck. They just feel like life's easy. Yeah, it's that kind of cushy lifestyle mentality. Um, yeah, no, that's very, very true. Um, but they also spoke to my brother Parley on there, which was actually great to see. Um, and he spoke about things from a Gujarati perspective and how, you know, that business and economical thought process is something that is ingrained on them from a very, very young age to, you know, try to be entrepreneurs and try to progress through society. It's um, really encouraged to the point where actually a lot of the parents, Gujarati parents will say, don't go to university, don't waste your money. Yeah. <laughs> it's always about the money. Bandit. But um, but go off and try and do something for yourself. Set up your own business. Yeah. But so they're still encouraging their sons to go out there and actually make something of themselves and do something with their lives. But again, the little prince kind of epidemic still reigns within the Gujarati community as well. Yeah. A kind of sharp contrast between that and obviously the guys from Bradford, you know, the Mirpuri community, the guy right at the end, Nav, who was probably the most well-spoken out of all the guys that she spoke to there. And I think the line that kind of touched on me during that was when he said, you know, the parents came over to a first world country with a third world mentality. And I think really that still resonates today with some of the youth, you know, through most but of the UK. Also, I think he means that you end up living in that village community kind of mentality as well. Yeah. It's very, as Punjabis would say, Bindu, you know, you stay, you stay within your own. You don't try and go beyond that. Yeah. And you don't try and push the boundaries. And, um, Really, we should be encouraging our, our lads to be doing that, to to push the boundaries, to get out there and, you know, and to really educate themselves and make something of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, she did go to, to Pakistan as well to see a few of the guys that have gone over there, basically, to, to set up and kind of, you know, progress their lives instead of living here. Um, but there's a lot of actually criticism about this uh, documentary as well from many circles. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a lady by the name of um, Sahema Manzur Khan, who goes by the name of the Brown Hijabi on uh, on Twitter. And she actually said, I'm in shock about how disgracefully she happily used her insider status to reproduce racist, culturally essentializing tropes and ignore racism. You know, there's a whole thread about it, basically. But there's that resonates the sentiment of a lot of people as well that watched that documentary. They felt that she was looking at it from a purely like an English perspective and using the fact that she was Pakistani to get away with I don't know some of the I, things she said. I don't know if I agree with that because the guys that she spoke to that went to Pakistan said that they did so because it was easier for them to progress there because they, they were away from the prejudice that happens in this country. 
Mm. So that's why they had gone there. Yeah. They had gone there to flourish amongst a group of people who wouldn't look at them as being um, outsiders for the color of their skin. They might be outsiders because they've been born elsewhere. Yeah. But they weren't, there was no overt prejudice against them from the off just by looking at the color of their skin. Mm. And I think that's what, that was the whole point of that section of, of the show. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand it and stuff, but there were a lot of circles that would have looked at that show and been like, okay, so why didn't they speak to a few women to get their perspective on the guys in their life, the people, the, the, the men in their life? Because I think women get a lot of, and I am saying this as a woman, I think women get a lot of airtime mm. to talk about these things. Do they? I don't know. More so than, have you ever seen a young Asian lad get the airtime on a whole show like this? I've never seen that before. It's easy to say, oh, well, you know, where were the women in white? But the, the point was, was that she was trying to give young Asian men some airtime to get across why they find it so hard to progress. The girls are actually progressing. Hmm. Yes, there's racism and we all have to deal with it. You know, yes, there's that glass ceiling that we can't shatter because we're brown. Yeah. And if you're a woman, it's even harder. All that kind of stuff that I've said before. But at the same time, if you're a young Asian lad, no one will sit next to you on the tube. You can't carry a backpack. There's all these other things that are going on yeah, ridiculous, that yeah. they have to deal with. And yes, that's that's societal prejudice that they have to deal with. But they're also dealing with internal pressures from their, within their communities and within their households. And it was, it was a, I think it was just a, a way to give some kind of insight into that. Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions with them and they're on the fringes and they don't get a chance for them to be portrayed in a in a positive light or just to give an insight into their lives and their stories. So do watch it back again on iPlayer. Uh, Marion Bake is a presenter of that show and it's called Lost Boys. So definitely check that out. But yeah, two of the shows that have been on this week as part of this season, um, A Passage to Britain, which is actually one of my uh favorite shows from this season so far really yeah because i guess we don't really know a lot about the story of the original asians that first came over all those years ago back in the 1920s you know i know about obviously my parents generation that came over from uh east africa like my mom did from mombasa and then my dad obviously thereafter in the 60s and 70s but those original indians that were coming over and setting themselves up within uk society and the initial integration mm -hmm. in what must have been extremely hostile conditions yeah um you know i thought it was an extremely interesting insight um and it was um presented by yasmin khan dr yasmin khan yes um what were your thoughts on the show i thought it, again i thought it was really interesting to hear about the early stories because they were saying that it was only what like three thousand or something asians that lived in the country in the 30s yeah um so can you imagine can you imagine that? that Three th there's 3,000 just on the street. <laughs> it really does feel like that. And so to, to live um, to live in a country and be so rare and mm. so exotic would have been interesting because I think this, the stories that they showed, for a lot of those people, actually, they were accepted. Yeah. Um, so they came over on the uh, P&O's Viceroy of India yes. in the 30s, uh, I believe. Yeah. And um, there was actually a famous writer on there as well yes a man called Mulkraj Anand mm. whose books I haven't read yeah but I am now very very much interested in reading um and he actually wrote one of his most famous book on the on the ship yeah. on his way over untouchable yes no. and that obviously is about the the caste system in India yeah um but he came here and he built 
a life for himself here for a little while. Yeah, before jumping back home. Well, no, he was called back home. I think he was he had that inner calling back home to fight the to fight the good fight. Oh, that's true. Yeah, actually, he yeah. went back to you know finish what he felt like he should have stayed to do. I think. Yeah. Um, and he had to make that tough decision between his homeland and fighting for the freedom of his homeland, and his family, and unfortunately, his young family lost yeah absolutely um and i think there was a, a few a lot of cases like that where you know a lot of these guys came over and they did basically get together with with white ladies and then have children and then a lot of them fleed back home and these people are left to you know pick up the pieces and have a life thereafter without a father in their life it's a really interesting show there's another episode of it coming on um in the next week or so yeah um and that's another it's another passenger list from another ship and so she'll be talking to a whole new set of people um, that came over a bit later on. Yeah, exactly. I think it's post-war. Oh, okay. I think. There might be some people that relate to us, JJB. Potentially. You know. Um, and there's a few other shows and stuff that we've seen this week, but the one show that I mixed emotions on, basically, was the show about Bollywood that was presented by Anita Rani. Anita Rani. Anita Rani. Um, <laughs> like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of Indian cinema. You know, and okay, fair enough. I'm a fan of Bollywood, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, specifically like, you know, the 70s Bollywood era, obviously, because Amitabh Bachchan is like my idol. And I just felt that this show, as as great as it is to showcase that industry, what's the connection between that and British Asian? I mean, there's none. It's just that whole thing of non-Asians in this country being fascinated by Bollywood because it's so colourful and exotic. And that's exactly how she describes it as well in yeah. the opening statement as exotic and colourful yeah. and loud and brash and all the other kind of annoying you stereotypes. Know, marigold hotel type of you know words that they use. Yeah. But like that's got nothing to do with us being British Asian. Other than the fact that yes, we watch we watch the films. Well, they're obviously our fellow, like, you know, motherland country people, um, you know, and obviously there's a massive fascination between uh, people from here and the films from India, um, specifically from Bollywood. And, and it gives obviously gives an insight to that industry because Bollywood films are, you know, regularly in the top 10 films whenever they're released here in this country, the big ones, um, you know, and you get the stars coming over here for shows, etc. Um, but I've, I've seen shows in the last like 15 to 20 years about the Bollywood film industry. We saw Ruby Wax go over there all those years back and was there on K3G and seeing like t telling Hrithik Roshan to change his ridiculously tight t-shirts and then he just <laughs> turned up with a different tight t-shirt on instead. Um, I remember Clive James went over there and was um, on the sets. So I think it was Raj Kumar. He was there with Madhuri Dixit and Anil Kapoor then. Um, and so again, we're seeing the same industry um, and they're talking about the same things and the, the way the films are shot and how many people there are on set etc um, you know so obviously from a you know someone that knows the industry it's nothing that I don't know and for a, gen a new generation of people to see what Bollywood's about they'll see that for the first time and be like okay wow great but for me I just thought this is a, a chance to showcase British Asian uh, people on TV fair enough it's for a season I'd love it to be all year round but if you're going to specifically push the fact that it's a big British Asian summer season of programming rather than an Indian summer, then I don't feel that Bollywood needed to be showcased. Well, you if know? you're going to show it, show all of those British Asian actors that have gone over there. 
you know there's a, there's plenty of non-indian actors that have gone to india to act yeah you know yeah. non-indian born actors so they might be asian yeah but they've gone over to india to you know make their fortune and to become rich and famous and she could have focused on that yeah i know so many people that wanted to try to get into bollywood uh you know got stopped in the first hurdle when they go over there um because it's such a cutthroat industry and it's about who you know rather than what you know um and it's a massive struggle and i think that would have been a lot more interesting to see you know like a regular schmo from here um going over there you know literally like you know 10 pound in his pocket yeah. and trying to achieve you know superstardom because you know the allure of these films and the glamour and the glitz of them you know it makes anyone turn into putty yeah there's always a dark side as well there is a massive i'd dark rather side. see it maybe it's just you know the this, cynic in you yeah but i'd love to see all of that it, like you think about the me too movement mm. my god india must be 10 times worse absolutely and so i'd love to know a bit more about all of that i mean we've just create, created a show for them there though yeah exactly you know the the journey of british asian actors going to india to try and get a job and you know the successes and the failures and the dark side and the good side of it all that's a whole show that that would have been really interesting to show absolutely and they didn't do that they've just gone and done oh look at the singing dancing and the tinky tanky music yeah. i'm just please yeah why waste our taxpayers money <laughs> exactly license payers money yeah exactly so if you do want to commission that show we deserve a cut because we came up with that ad hoc right now yes give us our credit and our money copyright the native immigrants <laughs> um right um so yeah the big british asian summer season of programs is still ongoing there's still going to be more this week by the time this show goes out there'll probably be three or four more can i talk about one last one go on then that i really love go on then so i have a slight obsession with a program called inside the factory oh yes because i've got this weird fascination with the food food process so Any basically food? where it comes from the origin of it All food? and how it gets to us food yeah basically but i love knowing where it came from and how it got to us because there's a lot of stages in between see i thought you'd hate that because the way you are and in terms of your hygiene and cleanliness and you know being really chickeny i thought this kind of thing but seeing how these things are made and oh my god there's a little bit that squirted off uh, on that that metal bit oh no it's being mixed in and they're using their normal no. hands and no they gloves they go to proper factories factories where things are done right that's what they on that day that's how it was but well Anyway, so this the particular episode that I watched this week was about curry and they went to the Sherwood's factory. Yeah. And um they showed how they make curry sauces, in particular tikka masala sauce. Uh-huh. Which is the British invention. See that now that is a British Asian thing. Absolutely. And um it was it was fascinating. It's really fascinating. You know the story of how the chilies are dried and where they come from and grown in India and all of that stuff is really really fascinating. And also it was really interesting to see how although they use all of the same ingredients that we would use when we would use them at home that they make something that tastes nothing like real food. Yeah. I I was kind of not offended um but the way they claimed like tikka masala and just those kind of curries as british although they're just like oh curries are a british thing <laughs> like yeah. you what yeah the term curry is a british thing the actual food is indian and has been bastardized in the british society yeah exactly uh cuz they were you know they they could keep mentioning the fact that you know this is very much a british dish it's very much a british invention uh tikka masala was invented here in britain 
Um, Which it so, was because it's not a thing in India. It's not a thing in India. Absolutely not at all. I think partly what they were trying to say to be devil's advocate here is that the fascination with curry mm. as such, it only really exists in Britain the way that it does. You go to other places like America, it's just another another takeaway kind of food, but it's not really top of anyone's list. Yeah. You know, and, and places in Europe, it's really, I mean, we went to a terrible Indian restaurant in, in Nice, remember? Yeah. It was awful. They just don't have a clue about Indian food. Um, whereas in Britain, people are serious about it. Mm. And so that and there's but there is a slightly kind of Indian uh, a British twist to Indian food. Yeah. And I think that's what they were trying to get at. Yeah, but because of that, they've just claimed the dish, basically. Yeah, this is true. Well they can keep tikka masala because it's not a thing. Well, yeah, exactly. Although I have made it at home before and it was really delicious. Mm. Homemade. Traitor. Not not bought sauce. You're a traitor to your background. <laughs> um But yeah, speaking about things they can shove back in their faces. Mm-hmm. Boris Johnson. Oh, yeah, they can keep him. Yeah, so while we were working up a suntan up in the beaches of Santorini, Greece, uh, your good friend, Boris Johnson. uh, Not my friend. Well. Definitely not my friend. He wrote an article in The Telegraph, which actually said people wearing burqas look like letterboxes or bank robbers. Uh, in this column, in which he also argued against a ban on full-faced veils. Uh, critics have accused him of stoking Islamophobia to boost his Tory leadership ambitions, but his supporters have said he was speaking up for liberal values. Um, Metropolitan Police Commissioner Cressida Dick said that while many have found Mr Johnson's remarks offensive, officers had decided that he did not commit an offence. Um, he himself is actually facing an investigation into breaches of the Conservative Party Code of Conduct. Thoughts, Jojo B. I feel like he has very cleverly used his words so that he's been a little bit offensive, but Mm. not offensive enough to get sacked or charged with anything, but enough to motivate those people who are already, you know, racist and looking for an excuse Mm. um, to start harassing people even more in the street. Yeah. And and I feel like this has all come about from his recent meetings with Steve Bannon, mm. who is a renowned right winger from America, who yep. was part of the Trump campaign. Um, I think he got fired by Trump, but or he left one of the other. Um, and he he um, has used his hints and tips to <laughs> to try and stoke a stock the fire. market racist. Yeah, basically, because Steve Bannon is very clever and he knows how to use words um, to just just ignite things, you know. Stoke just, the fire, yeah, basically. Yeah, just set it going and then let the flames rise, basically. Yeah. And he's doing this across Europe. He's having meetings across Europe with um, people on slightly more on the right wing, shall we say, mm-hmm. <laughs> who are now... I think understanding that actually to win elections, they're going to have to win round the people who are even further on the right wing. Yeah. And they have to bring them into the fold. So they have to pander to them when they use the kind of language that those people would use. Yeah. And I think, I think Boris Johnson has cleverly done that. Uh, Clever is a, is a very strong word to use in a sentence with uh, Boris Johnson. This man has been to Eton and he's been to an Oxbridge. He's definitely been eaten. And, and he's been to Oxbridge and he's, you know, he's he's a very, very clever man. You don't get to his position in life, into that point in the party that he's in or mm. he was in, um, 
without being very very clever he's very astute that man don't don't let the kind of outward buffoon bumbling nonsense get you wow. he knows what he's doing i think there's someone with political aspirations like him he wants to be the next prime minister the usage of language and the rhetoric that he kind of spews is is not going to catch him much favors i don't know i think it might get him there look at brexit well, look at Brexit. He key... fanned those flames as well for Brexit and look what happened. He won. Mm. And he he could potentially win again if he gets the chance to say more of this stuff and to speak directly to those people who are feeling angry. Yeah, well, the, the Times have actually said that Muslim women have reported an increase in verbal attacks in the week after Boris Johnson's comments about the burqa and niqab. Uh, a total of 21 incidents of abusive behaviour have been reported to Tell Mama, a project which aims to record Islamophobic activity since his column was published on August the 6th in The Telegraph, compared with five in the previous week. This included 14 reports from women who wear the hijab or head covering and seven from women who wear niqab face veil. So people don't know the difference between hijab, niqab and a burqa as well. So what, what is the difference between them, Jojo B? So the hijab is the headscarf. Okay. Yep, so you can still see the face. Uh, the niqab is the face veil, so it's like a hijab with a um, with a veil over the from the nose down, so you can still see the eyes. The burqa is like a full covering with like a kind of mesh over the eyes, so you don't. So the eyes are covered, but mm. they um, they they aren't visible to somebody. Yeah. So now, I understand that people are very mistrust, mistrustful of anyone whose face they can't see. In the same way that you'd probably a bit scared, be a bit scared of a guy with a balaclava on. Yeah. You know, you don't know what, what their intentions are, what's going on. And it looks, it can seem a bit menacing because, you know, as humans, we read body language and facial recognition is, you know, a huge part of our communication. Yeah. You know, a subconscious communication. So I get it. I get that some people would be really uncomfortable with people covering their faces. But what this has come down to is, is racism rather than a practical kind of um, argument. Mm. Um, and it's also the the liberal kind of, oh, we're just helping women because they're oppressed and repressed yeah. and they're being forced by men to wear these things and they shouldn't have to. Yeah. That argument doesn't stand up very much either. Some women, yes, they are forced into it and that's really bad. And in some countries like um, in Iran and places like that, they are forced, it's mm. legally enforced to be covered. Yeah. So a man has said to a woman, you have to wear this. In this country, most women who wear it choose to wear it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's their own personal choice. And for me, I don't think a man should ever be telling me how much to wear. Because <laughs> to be honest, we can't win. So either, you know, we we get raped because we don't wear enough and it's our fault because you were wearing a short skirt and so it was your fault that I raped you. Yeah. Or it's your wearing too many clothes and you're too clo you're too covered and so now I have to pull this veil off you because I don't trust you. Yeah. And so you brought it on yourself if I have manhandled you in the street. Yeah. You know, either way, the violence is being condoned. And I think that's wrong. Yeah. No. It's a very kind of stupid patriarchal blokey argument that really fucks me off. Yeah. There's no there's no feminist argument here that people who are claiming that it's a liberal feminist thing that we're trying to, you know, liberate the women. Fuck off. No, you're not. Mm. You're trying to tell me what to wear and you're trying to tell the next woman what to wear. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's all a load of bollocks and it's all hidden behind. It's it's all to hide the the racism 
that sits behind all of this, the racism and the prejudice. Well, I think that's that's the key thing, um, because, you know, if we come back to his actual comments themselves, um, you know, it was said in a way that came across, I guess, humorous to a lot of circles. Um, people that have been defending him, basically, over the course of the last couple of weeks uh, have been um, people within the comedy world, like Rowan Atkinson, um, who actually said that it was satire rather than any kind of racist remarks. And then that freedom of speech um, element of it should, shouldn't should have to have any kind of uh, connotations basically involved with it. Um, apparently, the majority of Britons actually say that Boris Johnson should not be punished for bu- the Burka comments. Um, according to a poll, the ComRes survey for the Sunday Express found 53% opposed to punishment for the former foreign secretary against 40% who said he deserved to be disciplined. Um, now, I think there's a very, very thin line between satire and these ignorant kind of racist uh, terms because you can use satire as a means of saying anything you wanted to um you know you can hide behind the term satire for everything but it's not satirical he wasn't doing it in a satirical way satire is done with making a point he wasn't making a point he was just being rude and 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 obnoxious about a, an item of clothing mm. if you're being satirical you'll have a point to make within that that context yeah, yeah. and so Rowan Atkinson has spent his life doing satire. Blackadder, you know, poked fun at the Christian establishment all the way through all of its series. You know, there was always a kind of buffoon from from the establishment there. Yeah. Um, So I understand why he thinks that it's okay in a satirical context. But this, I don't think, was satire. And I think that's the point. He was just being rude. Yeah, no, exactly. And offensive. Um, but speaking about rude and offensive, um, further on from the comments that Boris Johnson made, uh, UKIP's assembly leader, Gareth Bennett, actually said that women wearing the veil are an alien culture. Uh, he added, it's certainly not a pleasant feeling for many people in Britain who are British and regard themselves as having British values to be confronted by these apparitions, which seem to be of some kind of pre-medieval culture. Um, so, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, th- his comments, Boris Johnson's initial comments, have obviously sparked up that debate amongst those circles, amongst people within the far right. Um, and that's through all corners of society. And that's the problem that I find. That he's an influential person in an influential position. Fair enough, he's no longer foreign secretary. Obviously, that controversial reasons for him leaving that post in the first place. He shouldn't have got that post in the first place itself um, because of all of his comments. He's pretty much like a you know, the, the politics version of like Prince Philip with these kind of off-handed, racist, undertone, ignorant remarks that he's made over the course of his entire political career. You know, someone with his status that's that's got political aspirations to basically be the next prime minister, I think it's wholeheartedly irresponsible um, with the things that he said. Knowingly or unknowingly, it's done him absolutely no favours basically within that field. Yeah, I think that thing that's completely right. And I, but he isn't he isn't a Prince Philip. He isn't he isn't as thick as Prince Philip. I think this genuinely does come from a place of a bit more um he's a bit more conniving about it. Mm. It's a bit more planned. He knows when you're writing an article, it's not like making an offhand comment when you're talking or in conversation. You know, you can't go back and say, oh, I said it by accident. You've written it, it's been edited. You know, those articles don't just go out without some editing. Someone said, okay, this is all right for him to say. Or have asked him, are you sure you want to say this? And he said, yes. 
So I think this is a lot more calculated and he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And he knew that he could win round a lot of very, very prejudiced people, whether they're outspokenly prejudiced or, you know, there's the whole bunch of people, a massive, massive chunk of people that will sit in their living rooms and slag you off. Be nice to your face. But sit in your living in their living rooms and go with these packies and all these and all that kind of stuff. Mm. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of that, you know. And there's a lot of people who won't even say anything to anyone, but subconsciously are very, very prejudiced and don't want to, you know, have to deal with a lady with a veil on. So is he? Is he almost like the spokesperson for those people? He's just reflecting their views. And so when someone says it, when someone of his profile says something like that out loud in public then it makes it okay for the average person to say it. Yeah. And I think that's been that's the been the story since Brexit and that's why it's got progressively worse since then. Yeah. But where does it see where does it where does it stop? You know, we're talking about like I don't think it will for a long time yet. I think it's going to get worse. Um because you know, we talk we talk about satire aside and using um freedom of speech to say things like these kind of comments, you know, we've seen, you know, publications through the course of history, Mad Magazine used to do that back in the day with political satire. Uh, And then like, you know, magazines like Charlie Hebdo with religious satire, but obviously borderline, obviously racism and overtly racism as some of their issues have been, you know, it leads to some like real ridiculous connotations. I'm not saying that any aspect that this is what this kind of, you know, what the things that he's saying could potentially lead to, but you're talking about, to stoke the fire, to fuel the fire from people at the top level of UK politics, when that filters through society, that that can only be, um, you know, a recipe for, you know, disaster. Yeah, and I think there's more of it to come, unfortunately. I'm a, I'm a real cynic and a sceptic. And I think that we've gone down this track. There's no turning back for a while yet. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to keep fighting and having these conversations about our rights to practice, you know, our religions as well. You know, what's next? Are they going to tell Sikh men to take the turbans off? Mm, Are they going to tell a nun to not cover her head? Because there's so many other religions that where women are covered like that. You know, certain, you know, in Judaism, women wear head coverings if they're from certain, you know, if they're orthodox and things. Um, Same with Christianity. Same with Sikhism, you know, people do cover themselves for modesty reasons within their religion. And so where does it stop? This It will start with this group. It will carry on to another group. It's just, it's just one of those things that you have to start tackling the problem. But I don't see it being resolved anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. In agreement with that was actually First Minister Carwin Jones, who said, we have to ask why Gareth Bennett and Boris Johnson are attacking Muslim women. It is clear to me that they're doing this solely to raise their own profile to gain political advantage. But despite their selfish motivations, their language has a broader dangerous impact. It results in Muslim women being abused in the street. It legitimises xenophobic conversation and ultimately leads to further division and mistrust. This benefits nobody except Bennett and Johnson. The language they're using is dangerously irresponsible. It is racist. This is not how elected politicians in positions of responsibility should behave. Um, now, that echoes the sentiment of the things that I was saying um, and also the things that Jojo B was saying as well. You know, we have to draw the line sometimes with things that we think are said in jest or jokey, uh, comedic, satirical even ways to things that are pretty much overtly racist. Now, you know, we used to sit there and watch those old uh, television specials from like a Jim Davison 
or like a Bernard Manning with all these racial jokes and, you know, things that were okay back in the day to say, um, offensive to our communities, you know, plain, plain as fact. And that's exactly what this is today. You know, this is obviously someone from the old Eton Boys Club making those same kind of jokes that you can make back in the 60s and 70s in like, you know, carry on films or it ain't half hot mum. But this is someone in top level politics. And if the leaders of this country um, carry on with this kind of ridiculously irresponsible behavior, words and activity, then what hope does the rest of society have? Because that does filter through and you do see these idiots popping up through society. So Boris Johnson, you are an idiot. Yes, you are. <laughs> right. Well, that is the end of another episode of the Native Immigrants Podcast. We'll be back next week for more of the same. I'm Swami Barakas. And I'm Jojo B. And we'll see you all next week, people. Peace. See you.